those 22 minutes that summed up, you know, 15 years of dreaming, uh, an absolute plethora of emotions and uh, a roller coaster ride of note. It, it was still to this day difficult to articulate. It was everything I'd ever felt, all the anger, the depression, the, the self-doubt, the self-hatred, the humiliation, the embarrassment, the pride, the joy, the sheer just elation was all just mixed into one mental kind of block that um, obviously with a brain starved of oxygen at 8,800 meters high is not easy to cope with. Mm. And um, I basically sat for those 22 minutes just trying to, trying to realize what the present moment meant. Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. A very warm welcome to this episode of PageCast, which is brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. My name is Pippa Hudson. I'm the host of the lunchtime show on talk radio station Cape Talk, which broadcasts out of Cape Town, South Africa. And it's a real pleasure to be with you today talking about a book which I found both thrilling and really inspiring. It's called Mind Over Mountain. And it's the story of how mountain climber Robbie Coyetten fought his way back from a really serious injury to reach the very top of the world. It is a tale of great of determination and of simply refusing to give up on one's dreams. Great pleasure to have Robbie with us to share the story today. Thanks for joining us, Robbie. Welcome. Thanks, Pippa. Lovely to be here. Let's start at the beginning. What first drew you to the sport of mountain climbing? Sure. That's um, one of those questions that can be answered either the short way or the long way. Um, the short way, I uh, was always involved with the outdoors as a quite an avid Boy Scout. And um, climbing just happened as, as a natural progression. You know, we, we saw, I saw it and um, landed up joining other people that were doing it. And before you know it, um, that, that was my passion, full-time passion. Mm. Uh, the, the, the short answer is I never learned to play football. <laughs> When yeah. did the dream of Mount Everest begin, Robbie? I know uh, there was a particular photograph that inspired you to start thinking of bigger and bigger summits. But when did that dream sort of start formulating in your head? Sure. I mean, as a child, I was um, everything from a, a ninja to Indiana Jones. Um, Everest was always just one of those things. But uh, that picture you speak of was in a, a National Geographic magazine where I saw Tenzing Norgay standing on the summit. I had no idea who he was. I had no idea in which country the mountain was. I just mm. felt this impeccable magnetism to the top of tall mountains. And uh, Everest has been a, a thing. It's, uh, it's a magical kind of story. The romance of it all has always been a, an interest for me since I was a young boy. Okay. And as I got older and more into climbing and, and talking to other climbers and reading more books, the, the passion just grew and grew and grew. Now, yeah. you were working towards that goal of, of mounting a, a summit attempt uh, in the near future when everything changed for you in an instant in, in 2006. I think you would have been in your late 20s at the time when you had an accident during training in the most sort of arbitrary of circumstances, Robbie, uh, that, that changed your life and just turned it on its head. Can you tell us what happened that day? 
Absolutely. Yeah, the day in question was 26th of April, 2006. And uh, I had just gotten back from a week in Cape Town, uh, doing all sorts of crazy things from my first skydive to climbing Jacob's Ladder, which is a traditional route all the way up Table Mountain that lands up at the cable station. And uh, I mean, we even descended Platyclip Gorge in the dark with our wallets. And uh, it was uh, an adventurous week. And Monday night, we went to the indoor climbing gym at Fitz University. And I can't even say I fell. I jumped onto the mat after, I, I mean, I wasn't that high up off the ground, maybe two and a half meters. Jumped onto the safety mat and I just happened to hit a split between two blocks of foam. And my feet went down and all of my body weight went on top of it, forcing my feet to go backwards. And uh, basically ruptured and broke everything from my knees down. And uh, yeah, you say arbitrary, it was. It was just another Monday night. We were training for a trip. We were planning to go to Mount Kenya in that December. So it was eight months away. And uh, yeah, that night would change the course of absolutely everything. Robbie, I mean, can you remember the moment of the accident, what was going through your head? Because reading in the book, what what was most frightening about it almost was your recognition of what was about to happen to you. The split second before you hit the ground, you realized this is going to be bad. No idea how bad it was going to get. I mean, what do you remember of the moments immediately after the accident? Well, yeah, it was. People always say moments of trauma happen in in slow motion. Mm. And it was like that. I let go of the wall and I turned and I remember it was it was a rightward turn to turn 90 degrees to the wall to land on the mat. And I remember looking down into the split in the cover and it was it was like almost falling into a shark's mouth. Hmm. And yeah, I, I knew that this was bad. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was going to put all my weight in the wrong places and my, my feet were going down that hole. There was nothing I could do to change it. And I would make impact and I'll spare you the language, but I made impact where if you can imagine landing on your top tiptoes and then hunching over your whole body. And then I sprung back almost immediately, knowing that if I stayed there for too long, the, the pain would set in and it would be absolutely awful. So I sprung back and lay on, on my back, pulling my feet out of the hole and stuck my feet in the air and uh, like, like a, a like a beetle stuck on its back. And from there, things would sort of regain a normal sense of time. And I called my friends over and I said, I know this is bad. We need to get to a hospital quickly. And uh, by the looks on their faces, I knew exactly what was about to happen. And you were right. Everything I had planned for myself in my life was changed and gone. And a new life had just started in that moment. Robbie, that life included numerous surgeries. It included, as you've mentioned, numerous breaks. I mean, you really smashed your ankles to pieces on both sides. You were left wheelchair-bound for many, many months and in considerable ongoing pain. But besides the physical impact, um, what was most touching reading the story is, is the realization that you lost more than your ability to use your body as you wanted. You lost something that was really core to your sense of who you were. Your identity was so bound up in your ability to climb. And there you were facing um, long, long rehabilitation. Doctors telling you you might never walk or run normally again, let alone climb mountains. What did that do to you psychologically and emotionally? It was absolutely absolutely devastating. And um, it began a, a downward spiral in which every sort of, every tissue of my being started to unravel. 
uh, was very, very difficult on, on every single level. I identified myself as a climber and climbing was where I managed to express myself. I was, I had found my happy place and all of that had been taken away. Mm. Everything I had planned for myself, everything I envisaged in my future, the kind of persona I was building in my head was uh, set back to zero. Absolutely everything taken away from me. Um, and, and it was just, yeah, it manifested as, as physical disability. But as time went on, I was unable to go and see clients. I was working for myself as an advertising creative, doing copywriting and art direction in the days before working from home or, or, or we're talking dial-up internet. Yeah. And um, moving back in with mom to the first, first floor townhouse, um, you know, pushing around in a wheelchair that was barely big enough for one person, never mind two and one in a wheelchair, Everything became difficult and everything I took for granted was absolutely gone. Everything I'd counted on, everything I'd hoped for my future was set back to zero. And at the age of 28, that's it's quite a, a blow to take. Um, starting again, resetting from nothing and, and not knowing what your direction is because the one you had planned for yourself is no longer valid. Fair to say, I think that you hit absolute rock bottom, Robbie. As you said, a reset to zero, looking around, wondering where on earth to from here. You almost said nowhere. You came pretty close to giving up entirely, didn't you? I did, Pippa. Um, that day was the 3rd of November. I'll, I'll never forget it because it was um, my third year anniversary with the girl I was planning to marry. Uh, we were due to be married in that February. It was her birthday, and I said, well, come around, we need to chat about moving the wedding later. Because, you know, at that point in time, I wasn't even able to stand up in the wedding photos, never mind think about affording a wedding or moving in together or even a honeymoon or anything like that. I was I was stealing from Peter to pay Paul. My credit cards were maxed out. I hadn't worked in months and that was not the position I wanted to be in. And unfortunately, that evening turned into the conversation turned into a screaming match and things were said that could never be taken back. And uh, once they had left, uh, they took their daughter with them and I would never see her again oh. as my fiance. And um, it was over. And I sat eventually at three o'clock in the morning. There I was ready to make a deal with the devil, um, staring down a, a big handful of painkillers making myself a deal that I knew 35 tablets would kill me. But uh, I realized I had to double that number because my fear was that I wouldn't do it properly and my medical insurance wouldn't pay for a botched suicide attempt. Uh, those, that was the level of thoughts that were going through my head. That was the, the quality of where my, my mindset was, worrying only about messing it up. Hmm. Because, uh, yeah, I, I realized there was nothing more the world could take from me. And I, this was not the life I signed up for. So uh, I was ready to climb off. But you didn't. And in the midst of all of this, you hear that two of your best climbing mates, John and Gilad, are now planning an expedition to Everest. Robbie, you said everything you cared about had been taken from you. Uh, what did you feel when you heard that they were carrying on with the dream that had once been your shared dream together? It's so difficult to to, to sum it up in, in, in words. I mean, writing the book was a brilliant catharsis for me because I was able to, to sort of slow it down and pace it out and and articulated nicely. Um, it's a mixture of jealousy and being over the moon for my best friend. Uh, and, you know, somebody I, I really had high regard for. And to hear them going and doing and living my life story, it, it was very difficult to be happy for them while at the same time 
kind of cursing them under my breath at every um, every opportunity. And it was enough of a driving force to um, almost throw caution to the wind. Uh, for those listening, spoiler alert, I lived, I didn't go through with the suicide attempt. Um, it just didn't work out. And in the months and weeks that followed, I realized that I didn't have a reason to live for. So I got the chance to invent one. And once and again, I decided, yeah. yeah. Once again, that, that yeah, reason I, being a, being a big, big mountain that you decided you were still going to climb. Absolutely. Um, you know what? There was absolutely nothing. My, my business was gone. My relationship was gone. The wedding was off. Um, absolutely everything I valued was taken away. And I kind of had absolutely nothing to lose. So I had the chance to do something. I needed a reason to get out of bed the next day because that wasn't there. So I decided, if anything, it would be Mount Everest. <laughs> as crazy as anything, why not? <laughs> and uh, yeah, that became the reason to get out of bed the next day, um, brush your teeth, put on clean clothes and, and work towards something. Just give yourself a reason to go to the physio and, and let them torture you mm. because now there was a goal in place uh, as stupid or as um, what's the right word? Yeah. Maniacal <laughs> as stupid and ri ridiculous as that goal was, it was a goal and it was better than anything else. And it was a goal you trained for successfully and worked towards successfully to the point that you were on the verge of leaving for Nepal to go and mount a summit attempt. And then at the last minute, the trip was cancelled. Robbie, I mean, what that must have done to your state of mind to have held on to that hope for all that time, because by this point, that mountain, you can tell, was, was an all-consuming obsession for you. What was it like to have that rug snatched from under your feet at the last minute like that? Absolutely. I mean, we literally had our bags packed at the door. All I needed to do was put my toothbrush in and leave for the airport. And six days before departure, uh, something to do with the Olympic Games, the Chinese government decided to shut Mount Everest down from the side we were going to attempt it from. And, well, to, to give a little bit of context, the, the chapter in which I talk about that is called miscarriage. Yeah. And it was. We... The baby had been the focus of, of everything for, for months. It was the reason to get out of bed. It was absolutely everything. Uh, to, yeah, I'd basically chosen the, the nursery color. We'd put the teddy bears on the bed, and then we found out there was no baby. And it was absolutely destroying, um, taken back to zero yet again. And uh, yeah, I, I found myself on a psychologist's couch and, and feeling selfish because poor me, my little holiday was taken away. But it was so much more than that. Yeah. And unpacked. Hacking it, I did realize that it was indeed more than just a, a, an ego-driven trip or something like that. It was it was my life-saving ambition. And uh, yeah, but it was once again a chance to start again and rebuild and have a year more to heal, to uh, get stronger and tougher and uh, give the mountain a go 12 months later. And that you did. You got your second chance joining an expedition led by uh, New Zealander Russell Bryce. Robbie, I mean, describe for us what it felt like to, to reach base camp. I know it was not easy going even to get to that point, but to stand at Everest base camp, to look up and see the mountain in front of you and know I'm going to the top. What was it like to finally realize I'm going to get my shot at this? Uh, well, yeah, I think one of the most difficult things is, is all of these events come with two sides. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, the first time I actually saw Mount Everest in the flesh, we were still eight days away from the yeah. mountain. And uh, you see this giant pyramid of ice and rock as it dominates the skyline. And uh, 
you realize that you are 80 kilometers away from it, from the bottom of the mountain. <laughs> and uh, the excitement and the fear kind of battle it out in your head. And uh, the next week we would spend walking to base camp. That was a, a majority of what I was thinking about. And uh, I knew that I needed not to just get to the bottom, but from there, the tough adventure would start. Um, that's where the uphill became real. Mm. A lot of people get a lot of satisfaction from doing the base camp trek, just spending two weeks in Nepal, getting to see these giants in the Himalayas, and it's enough for them. And at that point in time, I kind of realized that. And I said, well, this in itself is incredible. And once we reached base camp, the, the fact that uh, the trekkers turned and went home to their families and we were to stay on for another two months mm. to uh, go and do the real business, that was absolutely intimidating and terrifying. Robbie, before we get to the physical challenge of actually climbing the mountain, let's talk a little bit about the mental battle, because there you are against all odds, standing on your own two feet, and you're struggling to contain a voice in your head that is telling you you don't belong here, you're not good enough to do this. That that sort of self-doubt that was plaguing you at this point, is that something you've struggled with before? I think I had always struggled with that throughout my life, um, suffering from depression and anxiety since I was a young child. Um, it has always been uh, a part of my way of thinking. And uh, as I described in the book, it's a leaderboard. And my name would move up and down that leaderboard as I looked at those people I was essentially competing against, um, only to realize that the only one I was competing with, as um, contrived as it sounds, was myself. Um, in the team, there were super athletes there were some of the strongest climbers in the world um one of the the belgian climbers was he had completed 17 ironman events wow and here i'm thinking well i've got that amount of screws in my ankles am i being stupid am i setting up yet another suicide mission and it was a constant measuring myself and often found finding myself second third fourth fifth best and uh keeping me awake at night and and yeah just adding to the anxiety as I compared myself to these people that, you know, these able-bodied people that were out to achieve probably the, one of the most dangerous things in the world to do. Yeah. And uh, yeah. me, Crippled Joe, rocking up thinking I could compete in the same arena. So, yeah, it, it added to the anxiety, but then it would take a lot of sort of checking in and um, taking a deep breath, slowing things down and realizing that I didn't come this far just to come this far. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was in the game still. And I wasn't out yet. So that, that meant something. So, yeah, that was a, a big encouragement to carry on. And carry on you did. I'm going to leave it for readers to experience the chapters describing the actual summit uh, expedition. Uh, they are absolutely gripping. Your description of conditions up there is just extraordinary. And as you note in the book, Robbie, everything is more difficult at altitude, even at base camp. Uh, it was difficult to function. The smallest tasks would leave you gasping for breath. And that is for somebody in peak physical condition. And as you point out, there you stood on two imperfect feet and ankles with screws holding your feet together, uh, <laughs> visibly limping as well a lot of the time in the mornings. Did you ever worry about how your teammates were looking at that and thinking about you, perhaps judging you, perhaps wondering if you would be a risk to their summit attempt? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was part of an expedition that had one of the most pragmatic and, and um, amazing leaders in the mountains, Russell Bryce. He was the, I mean, for the 24 years that he operated on Everest, he never lost a single climber. Wow. That uh, just goes to show that his logistics and his decision-making and everything was just world-class. 
here I am waking up every morning, limping to the mess tent to have breakfast, waiting for Russell to call me aside and go, you know, you're not going to be able to climb this mountain on your hands and knees. Yeah. Uh, that was always a little fear in the back of my head. Uh, and also, yes, uh, I did expect the other climbers to go, well, I don't want to be roped to that, uh, that cripple. He's, uh, he's going to be the death of us. And uh, the team was split into two, faster climbers and slower climbers. And um, there's no points for guessing which team I was on. <laughs> um, in fact, the Discovery documentary, Beyond the Limits, season three, uh, they described me as Russell's weakest climber that he's ever sent to the mountain. Wow. Which picked up a hell of a lot of flack on the YouTube comments. Uh, but yeah, you, you can use it to, to push you forward or you can use it to push you back. You used it to push you all the way to the top. Describe for us that moment on the 23rd of May 2009 when you stood on top of the world. Pippi, you forgot it was 13 minutes past nine. Let's make it exact. <laughs> <laughs> um, those 22 minutes that summed up, you know, 15 years of dreaming, uh, an absolute plethora of emotions and uh, a roller coaster ride of note. It, it was still to this day difficult to articulate. It was everything I'd ever felt, all the anger, the depression, the, the self-doubt, the self-hatred, the humiliation, the embarrassment, the pride, the joy, the sheer just elation was all just mixed into one mental kind of block that um, obviously with a brain starved of oxygen at 8,800 meters high is not easy to cope with. Mm. And um, I basically sat for those 22 minutes just trying to trying to realize what the present moment meant. And uh, yeah, before I knew it, it was over, the radio had crackled to life and Russell said, well, you're halfway, mate, you've got to make it all yeah. the way down now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that in itself was a bit of a, a jolt back to reality. I mean, it is, I think, fairly common knowledge that more climbers die on the way down than die on the way up to the top on Everest. Uh, how, how tough was it for you to get down, Robbie, having realized the dream, had that moment of extraordinary high and emotion up there, to have to look down the mountain and, and plod your way down again? Do you want to tell us what it was like for you? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I could physically feel the, the adrenaline start to drain from my body as I realized that it was indeed just the halfway point. Um, it would take me just over, just on 11 hours to get to the top, and it would take 13 hours to get back wow. down. A uh, different set of muscles, the impact of each downward step on my ankles that were already tired and, and very tender, that was just, um, I was beside myself. It was almost like trance-like where I'd, I'd enter into kind of a, a daze as I was just putting one foot in front of the other just to make it back down to the tents. Um, climbing mountains has often been described as it's like the Olympics where if you don't win gold, you die. Yeah. And, um, that was the mindset I was in. The only thing I wanted, I didn't want glory. I didn't need photographs. I didn't need an orchestra to play. I just needed to get back to the tent where I could collapse and cry some more. Back to the tent, you made it, and back home to South Africa after that. And uh, I'll leave it to the readers to explore for themselves the incredible stories of some of the other climbers who were on that trip with you and what they went through on the mountain, as well as your own story. It's fascinating reading. Robbie, amazing to me, though, what you went through arriving back in South Africa. And I guess listening to the emotion in your voice as you describe that moment of the top, you can understand why to come back home must have been something of an anticlimax. You have had this goal for so many years. You've given up so much, sacrificed so much to get there, and now it's done. What was it like to, to come back to earth, back to normal life, and have to just recalibrate your whole life with that goal now gone? 
Um, the, the process of coming back to earth, so to speak, it actually started in the tent once I did collapse in Camp 4 after the summit. I remember just lying there going, you just climbed the highest mountain in the world. Well, what does it mean? What, what now? You know, what now? Um, it, it was kind of like you've pointed your life towards this incredible moment. The moment is now gone. You find yourself in an abyss again. And um, the journey, the, the years and the months, um, they're not over yet. They're still going the years after Everest where you try and figure out why did you survive? Why? Why did you make it back down? Why? What was it all for? And um, you, you find yourself at the starting blocks again with a blank slate saying, okay, so now we've got to figure out what it meant. You don't have a reason, so you've got to invent one. And that's where... Speaking to people became incredibly therapeutic, telling my story, being able to inspire others, um, putting the book together. Um, for those of you that um, are hoping that once you've climbed Mount Everest, life is a bed of roses, it isn't. Uh, you get back to the same Joburg traffic, the same potholes, the same <laughs> cell phone bills, and uh, you've just got a different perspective on all of it. Yeah, so it, it was a, it, it's an ongoing process where you kind of go, well, I'm, I, I, I lived, now I just have to figure out why the hell that happened. Yeah. Robbie, I mean, you haven't left the mountains behind. You've carried on attempting big summits. And in some cases, you've had failures in those attempts. And reading the latter part of the book, describing uh, some of those attempts that didn't work out according to plan was really enlightening stuff. What, what would you say that the mountains you didn't manage to climb have taught you about yourself? Um, it, it's quite difficult because that double-edged sword makes you almost want to pack it in, get home, sell all your gear and never climb another mountain again. And then the next day you're just as motivated to give it another go and prove that you can do it with a different mindset, maybe a different strategy, um, different ways of doing things. Uh, we get to unpack our mistakes and, and sort of go through it with a fine tooth comb and, and see where exactly when, where we went wrong. What can we work on personally? What was within our control? What was not within our control? And um, yeah, it, it's very difficult. Um, I've climbed Denali, the highest point in North America yeah. twice, having reached high camp. The first time is in the book. Um, I reached high camp and wasn't able to, to continue to the summit only to return in 2019 and not summit again for reasons out of my control this time. And um, it's infuriating, but at least, um, uh, sorry, not 2019, 2017. Yeah. Um, I've turned one of my biggest nemesis into my biggest successes. Um, my, my daughter's middle name is McKinley. Mm -hmm. um, the, is other the other name, name. Yeah. is the highest point in North America. And um, yeah, so perhaps my, my weakness is her strong point. Um, yeah, she has that mountain within her. Yeah. And um, yeah, she'll be the part of me that can go further and higher than I ever will. So We'll see how that goes. I don't know if I'll go back to Denali to finish the seven summits. Yep. Um, my focuses are elsewhere at the moment. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's a learning curve and you can't let it beat you down. You've got to, you have to decide to make it stronger for yourself. You've got to decide that this is what is going to make you stronger. Mm. Robbie, the seven summits put to one side because there's another big mountain looming and it might not be the highest in Asia, but some would say it is the most dangerous in Asia. You are busy planning an expedition back to the Himalayas to attempt K2, um, uh, known to be a mountain which has claimed many lives, which is tough, tough, tough to get to the top of. Tell us a little bit about the significance. You're going to be the first South African group to summit this one if you get it right. Not so. 
Uh, absolutely. So K2 is in Pakistan. It's still part of the Himalayas. It's the highest, second highest mountain on earth. Um, it's 240 meters shorter than Everest, but for a number of reasons, it, it is more, more deadly. It is more technical challenging. It is, uh, yeah, the weather is worse. Everything about it just makes it um, Everest's feisty little sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give it some context, over 10,000 people have summited Mount Everest and only 377 have gotten to the wow. top of K2. Wow. Uh, to date, no South Africans have succeeded on K2. And uh, myself, John, Warren, Alan, characters you'll meet in the book, the four of us get on an airplane on the 14th of June. And uh, yeah, give it our best shot, see what we can do. You're taking uh, a flag to the top with you that has special significance. Robbie, tell us more. Absolutely. Um, so this time around, uh, when I went to Everest, I used my my expedition to to raise awareness and funding for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And pairing up with a pharmaceutical company, they made a lot of the PR and uh, it, opportunities possible for me. This time I'm climbing a mountain and I'm, I'm selling advertising space on the banner for people to come with me. Mm. Uh, you can buy a block on the banner. And this time we're raising awareness for um, people's living with mental, well, mental health issues. Mental wellness has come to the, the top of uh, a lot of people's minds, especially with the onset of COVID and how it's yeah. affected all of us. People living with depression and anxiety, just wanting people to be able to know that there is someone out there to talk to, that there are support structures, there is something that can be done about it, and we don't have to live with it on our own. Um, yeah. Yeah. The whole campaign is called Ask for Help, hashtag Ask for Help. And um, yeah, you can buy a block on the banner, um, ultimately to to honor people that have lived with depression and anxiety and also those that have lost the battle. Yeah. Um, my goal is essentially suicide prevention. You know, so many people go with their battles unspoken of and they suffer in silence until one day it's just too much. The light at the end of the tunnel is switched off and they go through with it. And um, yeah, you if we can use so our close. expedition to prevent needless deaths, then that's what we have to do. I mean, Robbie, I know you know how that feels because you came so close to switching off that light yourself. Um, my final question for you is with uh, about two months to go before you depart for the K2 mission, that nagging voice of self-doubt, your own anxiety and worries about, am I good enough? Am I worthy of this task? Am I enough? Is that going with you? Is it still part of your mental uh, makeup? Or do you think the, the the mountains you've literally and figuratively climbed in the intervening years will have changed that mindset? Do you think that that little voice in your head will be with you on K2? Um, I, definitely. I mean, as if anyone's watched Dexter, he refers to the, the dark side as um, his dark passenger. Yeah. And the dark passenger will unfortunately always be a part of me, but I get to decide in what capacity. Um. I've, I've revoked a lot of their um, decision-making process. <laughs> I've identified what they do and what what um, the effects of that nagging voice is, and I know how to counteract it. And those in my team as well are, are on high alert to pick it up and, and um, give them the boot as soon as they, they see him poking his head up. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, absolutely, depression and anxiety is something I do live with on a daily basis. Um, I do take medication for it. And... Um, it's something that will be a part of me and I have to accept that and also take every precaution I can to to counteract it, to work against it, to bolster myself in the areas where I know I'm good. Um, 
and and be as prepared as I can for this mountain, physically, mentally, and yeah, and just know that there'll, there'll be that voice, but it's not the boss. Robbie, all that remains is to wish you all the best of luck for the next expedition. Um, our, our wishes, our thoughts, and our hopes for you go with you. And uh, I have no doubt you're going to make it to the top of K2 and have the chance to unfurl that banner uh, in honor of uh, those who've lost the battle and those who continue to fight it. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for sharing it so beautifully and openly in your book, Mind Over Mountain. Uh, it is available in all good bookstores and online outlets. I highly recommend it. The stories of the ascent itself are only part of the journey. Uh, Mind Over Mountain published by Trigger Publishing and distributed in South Africa by Jonathan Ball Publishers. It's been a great pleasure having the author Robbie Coyetten with us for this edition of PageCast. And if you've enjoyed the episode, remember there is plenty more. You can find all of the previous episodes on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Robbie, thanks so much for your time. All the best. Thank you, Pippa. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.